Good evening. It is great to be with us this evening. It's great to gather together. Uh, thank you all for leading us in our service so far. Uh, I had, using the past tense, the most wonderful PowerPoint I was ever going to give you tonight, but I use a MacBook and I forgot to convert it from Keynote to PowerPoint, so you've just got to imagine that there's slides because there's none, so you'll actually have to read your Bibles because I can't put it up on the screen for you. Tonight we're going to read from Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 23 to 28. It's always wonderful when one sentence holds all three points of a sermon. So we're going to read verses 23 to 28. And it reads, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me are my words. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would you encourage, would you challenge, would you teach, would you rebuke through your spirit each and every one of us tonight? Amen. The question I've been dwelling on this week and the question that I've asked from this passage that I'm going to ask you repeatedly this evening that would be up there in bold letters, but it isn't. How committed are we to following Jesus? That's the question I want us to look at and examine from this passage tonight. What is required of us to live a life that follows our saviour? This is a passage well known to so many of us. There are so many great songs and hymns written from this passage. What must we do to follow Jesus? We must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross daily, and we must follow Jesus. So we're going to break that down a little bit. Last week, the last two weeks, Victoria and I have been on holiday. Uh, The Amalfi Coast of Italy has a lot of hills and a lot of cliffs. And there's like three beaches and ten miles because it's so hilly and cliffy. And it takes you like 45 minutes to do six miles because it's just hairpin bend after hairpin bend. And buses, and I would show you mental pictures of just how tight these roads are. And if two buses meet, you just have to sit until one can reverse enough so that the other can just slide past. There's scrapes on every car. There's scooters overtaking, undertaking every possible way. They go over you if they could, just going absolutely everywhere. But the most interesting group of people in all of that, and the craziest group of people in all of that, are the cyclists. So we stayed 1,500 feet up the side of a hill. 1,500 feet is a long way. And yet every day there would just be these guys, often in their 50s and 60s, not in what you, looking at them, would think were prime physical condition, without a bead of sweat on their head, just pedalling up 1,500 feet of hills. What's even more mental is they do it for fun. I haven't a clue how it's fun, but in the lycra, all dressed up, and off they go. And I think it was quite amazing, and it got me thinking of this picture of commitment and following. But if you were a cyclist that leisurely pedals up 1,500 feet for fun, you have to be pretty committed to what you do. You can't just jump on a bike one day and decide, I'm going to cycle up 1,500 feet. Maybe if you're all fit than me, you could. But it takes commitment, and it takes training, and it takes 
effort. You eat well, you train well, you do everything that you need to do to be able to ride that bike in those kind of crazy conditions. Sometimes you'd see groups of guys, they'd be encouraging each other. Somebody would start at the front and then they would drop back. Somebody else would take on, would lead the way. You would follow the person at the front. And then other times you would just get the guy on his own that was just going for a cycle. All these people as committed as each other, some of them on holiday and this is their hobby and this is apparently how they relax. But this is what they do. But each one of them is ready and prepared for what lies ahead of them. Each one of them carries water, carries food, carries things that they will need for that journey ahead. So my question with that is we see how committed cyclists, how committed sports people are, how committed so many of us are to what we do, but how committed are we to following Jesus if we declare Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of our life? We train, we work, we study, whether it be for exams, our careers. We train to cycle, we practice to play golf, we stay fit to run. And we tend to be pretty good at being dedicated to our hobbies. We tend to be pretty good at being dedicated to the things that we find fun and the things that we love. But how committed are we to following Jesus? Let's jump into the first point from verse 23 two words deny yourself which i think is expanded in verse 24 that reads for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it deny yourself there's something of a dual perspective going on here jesus is taking us from the perspective of the earth from the perspective of the human eyes, and is taking us to a godly perspective. It's taking us to a place of what we would see from God's eyes. Let's take a minute, let's reflect on this earthly perspective that we hear, that we read of in this passage. From the world's eyes, to follow Jesus is to lose everything. You have control over your own life. You can do what you want, when you want. Why on earth would you give that up? Why on earth would you give up everything that you can have, all the desires of your heart, to follow some God? Why on earth would you give up your freedom, your happiness, your own personal moral compass, your own desires, your own habits, your own way of life? Why would you give it up to follow a God? I create my own happiness. It's wonderful. It's about me. It's not about anyone else. I'm my own God. I can do what I want. But Jesus calls us not to live from that earthly perspective. That earthly perspective tells us the bigger the house, the bigger the car, the better the watch, the more well-behaved my children are, the better my job, that all of these things are the things that make life. What is Jesus' response to that? Lose it. Lose it. Doesn't mean to lose our house or our car or our watch or anything else that goes with that, but it means that we prioritize. It means that we start with our God and our God comes first and everything else falls under Jesus. The question in verse 25 For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Business stuff, profit and loss. From the earthly perspective, we profit massively by gaining the whole world. 
Imagine having the entirety of this world at your fingertips. All the finances of this world, all the possessions of this world, all the power of this world, every opportunity that you could ever want. How incredible would that be? Just infinite stuff. That's where I could find my joy in gaining the entire world. Why would I need a God if I can find everything I need in this world? But yet Jesus comes to us in verse 24 and he says, if you want to save your life, if you want the whole world, if you want the joy that is in this world, if you want contentment in this world, if you want all the desires of your flesh, lose it. Get rid of it. Cast it off. If you lose it, if you give up your sinful desires, if you give up your love for money, if you give up your selfish ambition, then, then you will save your life. I think Jesus uses this here because the godly perspective, the heavenly perspective makes no sense at all to this world. Deny yourselves, Jesus cries out to us. Not just to his disciples, to those that were gathered, but to all, to all who would follow the fifth word of verse 1, to all who would follow the universal commands to follow Christ. This isn't something that's written to the committed Christians. This isn't written to the, those that want to be the most spiritually mature. This isn't written to the deacons, to the elders, but this is written to all. The godly and the Christ-like perspective. It says, I will sacrifice Everything in this world in order to follow my saviour. Nothing comes first. For us to lose our lives is to save it. When our desire for Christ is greater than our desire for this world, that is where we are saved. That is where we recognise our need for our saviour. As I reflect upon this, I, I see so much that hurts me as I look to what we now, some call the church. We see the mark of the liberal church. This entire rejection of the notion of self-denial. God loves you just the way you are. You don't need to do anything because that's you. You're absolutely set. They peddle this idea that God is okay with our sinfulness. That because God accepts us, that there is no need for transformation. Or you're battling serious sin. That's okay, because God loves you the way that you are. You're wrestling with your pride, your lust, your sexuality, your love of money, your gossiping, your addiction. Oh, that's okay. God loves you the way you are. Don't worry about it. Yes, God does love you. But the transformational love of God does not lead us to accept our sin, but it leads us and it drives us to deny ourselves and to deny our fallen human nature. It must drive us to look upon our sin as grotesque and offensive to God that it is. How can we accept the thing that offends most, the God that we want to follow? We've not been set free from sin if we live in sin. That is why we must put Christ before all else. Love like Jesus, people will tell you. It's a favourite phrase. Jesus loved everybody, so love everybody. And yes, we should. 
But so many struggle to understand the love of Jesus. We almost take the cross out of the equation and we come to this revolutionary socialist, good moral teacher, happy little bobblehead Jesus that's just got arms open all the time saying, everything's okay, everything's wonderful. But yet we don't look to the God that came to this earth, that emptied himself, that gave up everything so that we might be reconciled to our God. I feel self-denial is something that's so lax in so many churches today. This idea of just be you, be yourself. Don't be you, don't be yourself. Be who you are created to be in Christ. Constantly be conforming to the image of Christ. And we come, we think, who's an example? Where do we find an example of somebody who denies themselves? But of course, we are led back to our Savior again. The way of Jesus is one of repeated self-denial. At the center of human life, there is free will, the ability to do what we wish. To do what is in my best interest. But following Jesus means we take that and we put that underneath the will of God. That is the cost of discipleship. To be a disciple of Christ, we follow the example of self-denial. We look to his commands of self-denial. How did Christ deny himself? Christ took himself from the place of all glory. Christ took himself from all praise. And he said, take it. And he left it so that he could come into this world to deny himself so that we might have relationship with our God. J.C. Ryle says these words, a crucified saviour will never be content to have a self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. No self-denial, no real grace, no cross, no crown. And Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desire. My first challenge to us in this is let us be intentional in denying our own desires. Of denying our sinful nature. We'll look at that a little bit more practically in a couple of minutes. But let us daily ask our God for forgiveness. Let us seek more and more to become like the resurrected Christ. It means saying that today I want less of Jonathan and I want more of Jesus. And it means keeping our eyes fixed upon him no matter how hard that becomes. How do we keep our eyes fixed on him? Philippians 4.8, what should we focus on? Whatever is true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything that is worthy of praise, think about these things. There we go. There's a matrix to put everything that we do through. Is what I am about to do, is what I am about to think, is it true, is it honourable, is it just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise? If the answer is no, or if the answer is, hmm, the answer is probably no. Think about these things. What are we filling our minds with? What are we focusing upon? How do we deny ourselves? How do we deny our sinfulness? By focusing on the things that are good and true and honourable. How committed are we to following Jesus? If we are serious about our relationship with God, then the denial of ourselves must be a daily part of our life. Looking towards our sinfulness, our sinful thoughts must always, always be looked at and be addressed. 
The second point, take up his cross daily, verse 23. We are called to pick up our cross. Not once on the day of salvation, but every single day. Again and again and again and again. And it's that word daily that strikes me in this. We so easily emphasize on the day that we became a Christian. But sometimes we don't always emphasize on our continued need of God. I'm a child of God, so I'm okay here. I'm in. I'm in the boat, I'm in the sheep pen, it's all right, I'm with my shepherd and everything's okay. And that's great. But we don't permanently pick up this cross and follow Jesus. The cross of our hearts that we pick up. But it is something that we must continually do. Why? Because discipleship is a daily discipline. We follow Jesus a step at a time. We follow Jesus a day at a time. Victoria's favorite verse, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. I love it. I love this picture of just more of Jesus, less of me. Let that be what we strive for, more of Jesus and less of me. Every day we must make conscious efforts through the Spirit of God to say that today, God, I want more of you and I want less of me. Today, let me follow you. But the great truth of the gospel is that we do not carry this cross on our own. Jesus just doesn't leave it to us. Because we have a God that's already done it. Because we have a God that has carried a cross so much greater than any of us could ever bear. So that we might be set free. We serve a God who knows what it is to be mocked, to be scorned, to be beaten. Who knows what it is to carry a tree on his back up a hill. But so much greater than that, we serve a God that knows what it is to take the weight of sin upon his back. So how do we do it? How do we pick up our cross daily? (coughs) It starts in our minds. It starts with the things that we think about. Perhaps a judging thought comes into our heads about somebody. Perhaps there is this grumbling dissatisfaction of something that lies ahead today. These sort of thoughts creep into our minds and we say, do you know what? I'm not going to entertain this. I'm not going to do this. But actually, I'm going to deny this thought. Our minds must stand guard at the doors of our heart. What was one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples in Gethsemane? Keep watch. Stand guard. Watch your heart at all times. Don't ever become complacent. Don't ever think that you are close enough to Jesus that you are away from the temptation of sin. Do you know when a sinful thought pops into our mind the first time, there is the temptation. There is the suggestion from Satan. And that is the crossroads that we have a decision to make. Am I going to follow me? Am I going to follow the thing that looks great, that feels great, that sounds great, whatever it is? Or... Am I going to deny it access to my heart? Am I going to deny it and am I going to turn to Jesus? It means that as soon as we become aware of something within us that disagrees, that goes against God, we disagree with it. We don't dwell on it. We give it a firm no. We don't permit the thought to pass. But we deny the sinfulness. If only it was that easy. If only it was that easy. It hurts us. It hurts us to go against our sinful nature. It hurts us to deny what we want to naturally do. There are two aspects of the cross in this. There is the idea of the physical suffering of the cross. But also the idea of death. 
that comes with the cross. But the suffering, there is something of the cross that shows us that, that to pick up our cross means that we must suffer, that our sinful nature must suffer so that we can follow Jesus. But we have the greatest reason of all to pick up that cross. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The possessions of this whole world will never make us happy. The delights of this world are false and they are deceptive. And millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions are deceived by the pleasures and the desires of this world. The riches, the power, the honour of this world. None of it has enough power to satisfy your heart. None of it. But yet the world still remains so attractive to us. We could gain everything in this world. But you know there comes that moment. There comes that time when we are separated permanently from the things of this world. Death will separate us from what we own. Whether we own nothing, whether we own half of the world's wealth, it doesn't matter. Yet so many seek the temporary over the permanent. So many seek the desires over the heart, over the permanent kingdom of God. Over the future eternity served and lived with our King. What must we do to follow Jesus? We must pick up our cross. Every day we must make the conscious effort to say, Jesus, today I want more of you and I want less of me. Today I will be on guard in my heart. Today I am going to make the conscious decision to follow you. How committed are we to following Jesus? Because this stuff takes commitment. This stuff takes work. And we look to the future and our third point, follow me. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I was thinking of following and I had a great little picture of a guy playing Simon Says. This idea, Simon Says, do star jumps. Simon Says, jog on the spot. Simon Says, clap your hands. From when we're born, we're taught instructions. We're taught from the youngest of ages how to go to the toilet. We're taught how to write our own names. We're taught silly games like Simon says. We're always taught to do things. We're people that need order and instruction. What do we do when we're given instructions at a young age? We follow. We all follow something. We all follow patterns. We all follow routines. We all idolize things and follow towards them. But the greatest news of Jesus is that we can follow the one who leads the way. Nobody else has led the way but our God. Nobody else is out with time but our God. Nobody else is sovereign but our God. How could we want to follow anybody or anything else by the one that is sovereign, by the one that is above all else, yet is so deeply, deeply personal that he lives in you? Follow me. Follow the greatest Example, the example above all examples. The one that even left his spirit to be with us because he knew that we couldn't follow him. 
Because our sinfulness was so great, we couldn't follow him. He left his spirit here with us. We don't serve a God that, that says, right, I'm going. And he runs. And he takes off. And we're trying to see Jesus somewhere in the distance. But we have a God that offers us a hand. That offers us and says, come and follow me. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's do life together. We don't live and serve this ethereal, far-off God. But we serve the God that lives within us. Our motive and our following of Jesus should be to glorify him. Anyone who is ashamed of Christ will never take up their cross and follow him. The reality of all of this is if we are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of us when he comes. And we will be shamed before him. It's a hard question, but are we ashamed to be followers of Jesus? Are there conversations with our colleagues, with our friends, with our family, where you just know what is going on, what is happening here is wrong? And we have that dilemma, the bubbles inside us. Do we speak? Do we remain silent to keep the peace? What do we do? Are we ashamed that we may be branded a bigot, homophobic, misogynistic, narrow-minded? Of course, we are not any of these things. But that is not how our culture understands us. That is not how the world around us understands us. Our world is just waiting to label us with these words. How sad it is. But how much more of a challenge it is for us now to not be ashamed of our God. Jesus here uses the future tense. He is looking forward. And it's amazing, but Jesus will return to the very earth, to the place that killed him, to the place that he suffered and died. And the reality of that is the entire world are going to be confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ. He will appear as the glorious son of man who has passed beyond the reach of suffering, beyond the reach of defeat and of death. Do we want to see Jesus when he comes back? How we respond to Jesus contributes to that. How we treat Jesus. How do we treat Jesus? Do we treat Jesus as the one full of majesty, as the one who is worthy, of the one who is holy? Or is it the thing that we do on a Sunday? Verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This speaks of the next portion of the passage, the transfiguration. I won't dwell on it or focus on it because it opens up a whole amount. But it's just Jesus coming and doing and Jesus coming and proving who he is. He's talking about the cross. He, he talked a couple of times about the cross before he dies. Something that must have been utterly perplexing to his followers. How many times were they told of what was to come, yet they still didn't grasp what was ahead of them? So many were confused. It's okay to be confused. The prophets were confused. We read in First Peter. But verse 27, it looks forward. We're not in the here and now, but what we do is we deny ourselves. We pick up our cross and we follow. And we follow him into eternity. To follow Christ is to walk the narrow path. It is to walk the difficult road. 
It is to walk the road that week by week seems to more and more counter the culture with which we find ourselves in. It is something that makes us different. But are our lives marked of people who are ashamed of the gospel? Or are, are our lives marked by the priorities, the words, the decisions and the actions of a person who has been radically transformed by Jesus? Denying the desires of the flesh, picking up our crosses daily and following him. Follow him and we will meet him in glory. The question again, how committed are we to following Jesus? Because we must choose it. We must choose to follow him. The beauty of the gospel is that this invitation from Jesus is to all. It's not exclusive. It doesn't deny anybody. It doesn't leave anybody out. But it is there to all without exception. Whoever you are, whatever you come from, whatever you've done, whatever your background is, the beauty of this is the invitation to follow Jesus is there for you tonight. But as we read, it's not an easy journey. It's not an easy life. To try daily to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. You look at that and think, my goodness, what have I signed up for? Because it is hard. But I promise you, it is worth it. Because there is no glory. There is no power. There is no honor. There is no riches. There is nothing in this world that compares to the satisfaction, the joy and the peace that you will find in Jesus. There is nothing that promises you eternity but Jesus. That is why this is worth it. This is the life of a Christian. A person whose life is visibly marked by the power of the God that saved us. So consider this tonight. Where tomorrow do we need to deny ourselves? What thoughts, what actions, what temptations do we need to meet head on tomorrow? But don't attempt it in your own strength. Bring it first to God. Bring it to the God that dwells in us. Bring it to the God that hears our every word. Spend time tonight. Spend time tomorrow morning. Pray. Spend time with him. Because we don't serve this distant God. But we serve the God that has already picked up the cross. And we serve the God that has already conquered the grave. Because we couldn't do that. What a mighty, mighty God we serve. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God. How challenging this is. Lord, how hard this looks when we look out into our world. When we look out and we see the sinfulness round about us. When we see the temptations and the attractions of this world. Lord, we recognize there are so many things that our sinful selves want to do, want to give into. But Lord, we recognize that you are greater than every temptation and every sin in this world. Lord, would you arm us and would you help us? Lord, would your spirit guide and protect us as we walk with you? God, would you help us to follow you? Like a horse with blinkers, Lord, would we ignore the distractions of this world? 
And would we follow wholeheartedly the God and the Savior that came into this world and rescued us? Lord, we are so undeserving of you. We are so undeserving of the God that gives us this opportunity to walk with him. But Lord, we are so grateful for it. We thank you that you are mighty. We thank you that you are bigger than us. We thank you that you are bigger than this world. You deserve so much more glory than we can give you. But Lord, everything we give you tonight, we offer as worship to you because you are the great God. In your name we pray. Amen.